So this week we will conclude what has sort of been a three-week series on the professing church's response to government mandates forcing or calling on the church to cancel the Assembly of the Saints. And this is an important topic to consider, and I do hope that the professing church will not repeat the mistakes that she made during this past year the next time something like this happens. So over the past 12 months... As we have discussed the past couple weeks, the professing church has sent some mixed signals to the world and to Christians. Primary in that list was a misrepresentation of Christianity that gives nothing, costs nothing, suffers nothing, and is worth nothing. And we addressed that two weeks ago. But in relation to the decision to cancel the assembly of Jesus' followers... She also set some bad examples in how Christians are to make decisions in this world, in this life. How are we to act? How are we to decide what we should do when faced with opposition, when faced with uh, consequences for faithfulness? And last week we considered, so two weeks ago we considered that misrepresentation of Christianity. Last week we considered why it is sometimes proper and necessary to correct the professing church and her leaders. And following up on that message, today I would like to offer a corrective for how the professing church and her leaders justified their decision to cancel the assembly of the saints, or at least one avenue, one route they took to justify their decision to cancel the assembly of the saints. This message is entitled, But We Prayed About It. But we prayed about it. The longer title could be, But we prayed about it and other excuses given by the professing church to defend unbiblical behavior. Now, obedience to government, a desire for people not to get sick, a concern to make quote-unquote wise choices were the main justifications given for canceling church. The theological answer, justification, really came down to this. To be consistent, the professing church and her leaders had to say, the Bible does not require Christians to gather together in fellowship on the Lord's Day if threatened or if the government tells them not to. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. If you're going to say, hey, we're not required to meet, then your theological, biblical answer has to be, the Bible does not require the church to gather together. Now, I think this is erroneous, and it has been addressed. We've addressed it in the past, and I've addressed it at length in my book on this topic. And we've already discussed in previous sermons how the professing church was quite happy to admit that God required Christians to meet, even in opposition from the government or if a Christian wife is uh, opposed by a husband Prior to the coronavirus, the church was happy to say Christians are required to meet as believers, even if they face opposition. But then they changed their tune. We've discussed that. But practically, the rhetoric used by church leaders to defend or justify, if you will, their decision to cancel church focused on four things. And those four things were the things that were often and still are presented to people as justifications for the decision to tell Jesus' followers that they should no longer gather together to encourage one another and edify one another as the body. These four things, whether it was intentional or not, were presented as things which should make Christians feel better about the church's decision to suspend the assembly of the saints. Now, unfortunately, some pastors may have been like John MacArthur and didn't even need to think much about the decision to cancel church. As we mentioned, MacArthur said it was an easy decision. When the government said don't meet, it was a, quote, easy decision to follow that mandate and cancel the assembly of the saints when the government said so. But other church leaders, I grant, did not make such a claim. They did not say it was easy, and they did think about it. And when they came to their conclusion, it was not hasty. They offered these four things as support for their decision. So hands down, the number one justification given for canceling services when you get to these practical things 
was that the church leaders prayed about it. We prayed about it. But there were also some other justifications given. <clears throat> Excuse me. We sought counsel. <clears throat> we thought deeply about it. And we really believed that what we were doing was right. So you have four things there that the professing church is saying they turn to when making their decision. Number one, prayer. Number two, counsel. Number three, serious thought. And number four, earnestness. Earnestness. So here's what we need to understand this morning. We need to understand the important place that these four things do have in the Christian life. Prayer, counsel, thought, and earnestness are very important. But none of these things justify abandoning the teaching of Scripture. Again, to justify the abandonment of meeting as a church due to the threat of sickness or fine or political correctness, the professing church had to argue theologically and biblically that the Bible was not clear, is not clear on whether or not the church should meet when facing opposition or danger. Now, as I've argued, even if it was a serious plague, the church leaders should never have told the, bo- the church as a body to stop meeting. The Bible and the example of church history are clear. And even those churches that closed, as we mentioned, had acknowledged that previously. They acknowledged the testimony of Scripture and church history. And it's disingenuous to say that now is not really a command from God. Again, today we're not wrestling with that topic of whether or not the Bible says the church should meet. We've addressed that elsewhere. But why list these other things? Why list prayer and counsel and thought? Why not simply say, hey, the Bible doesn't require the church to meet together, therefore we're choosing not to meet together as a church? There could be a couple different reasons for that. I'm not totally sure. It's dependent on each church's situation. But I think, in general, there was a lot of mental gymnastics that were done in order to appease consciences and make people feel better about the decision to cancel the assembly of the saints. I say that because in interacting with people both locally and across the country, even, even hearing from people in Canada, these things come up. <clears throat> we prayed about it. We sought counsel. We sought to be wise. <clears throat> now, ultimately, I think the leaders of the professing church made a simple matter complicated. They took a simple matter and made it complicated and then sought to sort of justify their actions. It was not insidious or ill-intentioned by most of the church, these churches. I do not believe they had ill motives or bad motives in what they were doing. And again, as we mentioned last week, I don't think the Pharisees were insidious or ill-intentioned most of the time. They were misguided, and intentional or not, they deviated from Scripture and thus misled the people. But because the professing church did not simply follow the clear teaching of God's word this past year regarding the assembly of the saints, they ended up setting some bad examples in regards to these four things, these four areas of the Christian life. So let's look at each of these four things in turn this morning. And we'll be asking with each one of these, at least implicitly, if I don't ask it explicitly, does this action, prayer, seeking counsel, etc., Does this action provide us with grounds to justify a decision? For each of these four points, we will have a a corresponding Bible verse, main Bible verse, and look at some other texts as well. And I'll spend most of my time on the first topic, prayer, because so many of the things I'll touch on there will apply to the other categories. So this is a corrective against the way these things have been presented, but it will also help us to understand how we are to properly view these four important aspects of the Christian life. So let's begin with number one, prayer. And our verse for prayer in relation to this topic is Proverbs 28, verse 9. Proverbs 28, 9 says this about prayer. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 28, 9. I prayed about it, and I have peace living with my girlfriend. I prayed about it, 
And I believe that a divorce is best. Even though no serious sin has been committed, we just aren't compatible. I prayed about it, and I have peace getting an abortion. Every evangelical and reformed pastor with any knowledge of the Bible would rightly say that such prayers are irrelevant when it comes to those actions. And why? Because if we ignore the Bible, we cannot expect our prayers to be of any use. If we turn away from the law, from God's word, our prayers an abomination to the Lord. That's what this text is teaching us. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So mark this, listen to this. If the Bible gives us direction in any area of our lives, if it gives us direction in an area of our lives, praying about whether or not we should follow that direction is not a sign of piety. It is a sign of being double-minded. And we'll touch more on that in a moment when we get to James 1. It's not a sign of piety to pray to God, should I obey what you've clearly revealed in your word? That's not a sign of piety. It's a sign of being double-minded. If the Bible calls on Christians to gather together, which I believe it clearly does, then why are we even praying about it? Why are we praying about whether or not we should meet together as a church? And this is what the, the COVID compromise, one of the things it made clear, the professing church this past year was very good at making things very complicated when they didn't need to. Some things are complicated. I'll grant that. But I'm thankful a lot of things in the Bible are simple. And Mark Twain's quote, I often come back to it. He said, I'm not troubled by the things in the Bible which I do not understand, but I am troubled by those things which I do understand and which I find very difficult to measure up to. Sometimes things are simple. And praise to God that his law is not complicated. Obedience to Christ, hear this, obedience to Christ is not complicated, though it can certainly be difficult. There's a difference. I love how the KJV puts it when referring to the highway of holiness in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 8. It says, the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. The way of holiness, the way of obedience to Christ is not complicated. Even if you're not the sharpest tool in the theological shed, you need not be concerned because Christian obedience is not reserved for the scholarly elites. Now, I'm not arguing for an anti-intellectual approach to Christianity. Not at all. I'm just saying that living for Jesus is not some complicated matter that only the religious elite can figure out. Even simple Christians, if you will, are required to have the correct content regarding the doctrine of the gospel and holy living. There's a requirement for theological content for all Christians. But the disciples, you will remember, were considered uneducated. They were uneducated in the eyes of the religious leaders of their day. And they may have been viewed as simple men, fishermen, many of them. But they were not ignorant, and they were certainly not anti-intellectual. Now, Peter said that there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand. In fact, let's turn there and look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says this. In verse, let's start in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Look at a couple things in this passage. The error is in the lawless people. Okay, Peter says, avoid the error of the lawless people. These people are ignorant of God's word. Right, Verse 16, they're ignorant and they are unstable. 
It's James 1 language, which we're going to visit in a minute. So the danger for twisting scripture, and it's not just the difficult passages, he says they do with the rest of scripture as well. The danger in twisting scripture comes from two things, ignorance and instability. You put those things together and you get lawlessness. The error of the lawless people is that they are ignorant of God's law, God's word, and then they're unstable. And when we look at James, you'll see they're not genuine in their desire to obey God's word. They're like someone tossed on the sea. They're going to God's word, not for the motive of how can I obey God's word, but they're going to it with other motives. They're double-minded. Ignorance and instability lead to lawlessness. The law of God is like a guardrail for us. The law of God is like a guardrail for us in our lives. Now, Spurgeon used this language when speaking of the confession. He'd talk about the 1689 London Baptist Confession helped him stay within the proper bounds. Of course, the word of God is always above everything else. But the confession helped him stay within the bounds of Scripture. And it's the same with us in our Christian life. When we consider God's demands, we need to have the law of God, the law word of God, as the guardrails in our lives that we will not err, that we will not go off course. The law of God acts as a guardrail for us. It's quite clear. It's simple enough that even the wayfaring man, though fools, shall not err therein. Now, a lot of the simple, if you will, simple, but doctrinally sound churches did respond correctly to the COVID situation. They kept meeting. They kept meeting. They didn't have a big name pastor or a mega conference commitment that they had to worry about. They just focused on simple obedience within the bounds of God's law. That's number one. Also within the bounds of the historic confessions and church history. They said, we're going we're gonna to walk in the way of God's commandments. We're going to look at the confessions. We're going to look at church history. And we're going to keep meeting because, number one, God's word is clear on that. We're not going to fall into the error of ignorance or, or instability. The law is going to act as the guardrail. The word of God, his commandments will keep us in check. And we're going to make a decision based on those things. It doesn't take a PhD to read the Bible and look at church history and read about the Christians meeting in the Roman catacombs or the pilgrims meeting in unauthorized locations in, in defiance of government laws and conclude that the church of Jesus Christ meets together even if it costs them their lives, even if it endangers them and their families. But, so it doesn't take a PhD or an MDiv to figure that out. Just look at the Bible, look at church history. But it does take a lot of mental gymnastics to argue that even though we are commanded to meet as a body, even though the church has done it historically, we don't have to because of X, Y, or Z. Now, prayer was one of those things that was turned to. We prayed about it. We prayed about this decision. Now, I grant that prayer is an extremely vital aspect of the Christian life. I can't even begin to touch on how, how important prayer is. However, prayer is not to be employed in asking God to give us wisdom when we are not willing to obey what he has clearly revealed. And this is what James 1 speaks about quite clearly. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we'll see this, this theme of Prayer, wisdom, and instability. All right, James chapter 1, and we read this text earlier, but focus now on verse 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So look at this, this passage here. James chapter 1, the one who doubts is described in verse 8 as a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. To have God's word clearly before you, and then pray and ask God if you should obey what he has clearly revealed is praying as a pretense. It's a double-minded prayer. And such a person 
should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. I've looked at this passage before, and it says, ask in faith without doubting, right? So and sometimes you think, well, I just have to have enough faith in God, that, and if I pray and have that faith, then God will give me the wisdom. But I think James explains what he means by this faith and this belief and this commitment when he explains it in the end of verse 6 and 7. The person that prays without faith is the person that is double-minded and unstable. He's double-minded. He's not committed to praying to God for the strength and wisdom to obey what God has revealed. He's unstable, just like Peter warned about. The people who twist scripture are those who are unstable. So when I hear church leaders uh, that cancel church say they prayed about it, the two passages that come to mind to me are Proverbs 28, 9 and James 1, 5 through 8. Praying to God without a desire to obey what he has revealed is praying in an unstable way. It's praying with a double-minded approach. It's the double-minded prayer. But what about praying for wisdom? Should we not pray for wisdom? We must define our terms when we're talking about anything in life, and especially here. Biblical wisdom is walking in the law of the Lord. Yes, we are to pray for wisdom. As James directs us, he says, if you lack wisdom, pray, and God will give it to you. But not if you're asking God for wisdom when you don't really want to obey his word. If that's the case, you're double-minded. You're saying that you want wisdom, but then when you when you have it before you, you don't want to obey it. We pray, we are to pray, that God would help us act in accord with his word. We should pray that. We should pray that he would guide our steps in conformity to, it, to his word. And if we ask in faith, with that commitment to his word, and our desire is truly to obey, no matter the cost, right? If we say, Lord, we want to obey, not our will, but your will. God is happy. He's ge- he generously gives and reveals that wisdom. He says, here is the way, walk in it. Now, let me add a couple more points because I can hear people saying that, well, there are sometimes really difficult decisions in life that we must pray about. There are difficult decisions. There's two main types of difficult decisions in life, broadly speaking. The first type of difficult decision in life are those decisions in which either decision, either choice you make would not be sin. So it's not clearly revealed in Scripture, right? Should I move? Should I take this job, assuming both jobs are just and righteous? Should I become part of this ministry? Should I marry this person or not, assuming they meet the biblical qualifications? But you wouldn't be in sin not to marry that person. Praying about these things can certainly give you peace. Praying here is calling out to God to providentially guide our steps in what will be best, because we ultimately don't know that, but God does. So we pray to him, ask him to guide us and direct us in the path that we should take because we don't know because neither option is sin and it can vex us and trouble us. What should I do here? I don't know what's best. And we pray to God that he would providentially guide our steps. And while I do not believe that God is in the habit of verbally providing an answer to those sorts of things, even if he did, it would still be within the category of two righteous choices. We would pray that God would guide our steps and direct our way. That's the first type of difficult decision in life. Another type of difficult decision are those decisions in which the Bible is clear and we face the difficult challenge of our own heart, the pressure of the world, and the consequences for faithfulness. That's difficult, but it's another category. It's not difficult because we don't know what we should do. It's difficult because we know what we should do and we have to make our decision to act in accord with God's word. We should not pray for wisdom regarding what we should do in those circumstances. We should pray for wisdom to obey what is clearly revealed. We should pray for wisdom to live rightly according to God's revealed law word. So, for example, in in some evangelism that I'm doing, there's people that I know I need to confront them lovingly with their sin. 
So I'm praying to God for wisdom, not whether or not I should do it. I know I need to do it. I'm praying for wisdom. Lord, help me to do it according to your word. Help me to do this in a way that will be honoring to you. Help me to not compromise. Help me to be faithful to your word. Right? So I'm praying for, it's a difficult thing to confront people about their sin, but I don't need wisdom on whether or not I should do it. I need the strength and wisdom to do it according to God's word. And if the assembly of the church is a category one decision, if it's something that you can or can't do without sinning, then there's no need to even justify that decision by saying we prayed about it to other people because you're free to choose either option. If, however, as I believe that the assembly of the church is a category two decision, it's clearly revealed in scripture that we are to meet as a church, then not then whether or not we do it is not something we should pray about. It's irrelevant to pray about, hey, should we meet as a church? The prayer should be, hey, the Bible says we should meet as a church. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be faithful, to meet together, physically, as a church. Give us wisdom. Maybe we need to go to a different location, but help us to obey that command. That's the type of difficult decision that that should have been. How do we obey this? Not, hey, should we obey this or not? In either case, prayer does not provide justification for an action in either one of these cases. We can't say, well, I prayed about it, and therefore this is my decision. You see, biblical Christianity is not a mystical religion which says you need to pray to God to get some specific direction for your life. The direction is right here in God's word. The direction is right here. Our prayers are to be made according to the word. Remember, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, right? This means that we are, we're not praying for something contrary to what he has commanded. Our prayers are to be in accord with the word. And again, I think this was probably unintentional, but the professing church distorted the place of prayer in the life of the Christian by making it at least appear as if prayer could somehow help us make a decision which is contrary to the word of God. Now, again, I know no, no church leader is going to say that, but I'm digging into the, to the, to the practice here and what happened. It appeared that if you pray, that's justification for doing something contrary to the word of God. In so doing, the professing church implicitly undermined the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, The Bible is sufficient to direct us in all matters of life, especially matters of the church. I think all matters, but no one would argue with me that it's to direct us in religious matters of the church, so to speak. And the professing church turned instead to pragmatism, mysticism, and a distorted view of prayer in this case to find guidance. And they made things very complicated in so doing. You know, Spurgeon said, when we know our duty, when we know our duty, so if we know what we're called to do, I know I'm called to to present the gospel and truth in its fullness and confront sin and talk about the demands of discipleship. I know my duty. I have to do it. When we know our duty, the church is to meet together. Okay, so the Bible is clear on our duties. So Spurgeon said, when we know our duty, first thoughts are the best. If the thing is obviously right, never think about it a second time, but straightway go and do it. The church would have been well served to follow that counsel. They knew their duty. Meet as a church. They knew it. And that's why when they were faced with the the mandates from the government, at least most of them did not say it was an easy decision because they knew that they have to meet. They should have just stuck with their first thought. We will meet. We will meet. We're not going to think about this more. We're not going to make it complicated. We're going to follow God's command. Straightway, go and do it. The church put way too much thought into simply doing our duty. Instead of just doing it, all this thought, all these justifications. Now, God uses wonderful providences and prayer to comfort and strengthen his people. Again, I do not negate the importance of prayer at all. But to say that prayer is going to provide justification for our actions is to lessen the place of Scripture in the life of the believer. It sends a poor message to Christians. God communicates to us 
Right? Prayer is two-way communication. We pray to God. God communicates to us through his word. Right? And we pray back to him his word and ask for guidance and help us to live according to your word. Prayer in, in modern evangelicalism has become so far separated from God's word that this two-way communication has been altered. And we've stressed our end of it. Well, we pray and God's side of it and his directing us in his word has been neglected. The fact that God comforts and guides and directs and answers our prayers through his word, by opening our eyes to his word, by applying his word to our hearts. Those are the answers to our prayers. And we've just focused on what well, we prayed about it. Therefore, our decision is, is right. That's a misrepresentation of prayer. Well, number two is counsel. So we've talked about prayer. If we if we if we neglect the word of God, our prayer is abomination. Some people say, well, that's referring to unbelievers. And I don't deny that. But the problem is if we don't think that the that Christians are susceptible to sin, then we have a problem. Because yes, Peter has in mind probably unbelievers who are twisting scripture. The, Pro- the Proverbs passage has in mind those who, who reject God's word. But Christians can sin, right? And we are to avoid sin, like, a, like the real plague. We are to avoid sin above all else. So we cannot just look at passages in Scripture and say, well, that's just referring to unbelievers, and then say it doesn't matter for us. Yes, that might be referring to unbelievers, because unbelievers are living in sin constantly, but Christians can still sin, and we are to be killing sin, as John Owen said, or, be kill, or it will be killing us. So if we say, well, we're not susceptible to, to prayers that are not in accord with God's word because we're Christians, then we're really blind and prideful and not aware that we can err. So even a Christian can err and pray contrary to God's word, and such a prayer is not going to bring him comfort or direction. It's a double-minded prayer. So that was the, the misuse of prayer by the professing church. Number two, let's talk about counsel. In our, in our passage for this is Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. All right, and these last three I'll spend less time on because so much from what we said about prayer applies to these. You can't turn to something else when God's word is clear. So when Jesus critiqued the Pharisees in Matthew 15, as we talked about last week, he called them blind guides. And he said, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. When church leaders sought counsel from other church leaders who would not stand on God's word and said, well, we're not we're not going to meet. They were like the blind looking to the blind for guidance and both then fell into the pit of the covid compromise concerning the assembly of the saints. Now, again, there is a place for biblical counsel. Okay, there is a place for biblical counsel, but biblical counsel does not mean you simply pick the people that you want to hear from. And I'm going to talk about this. You know, I even heard from pastors who said that they met with other pastors and none of them really knew what to do. They didn't know what to do. And some even said that they didn't know of any churches that did, that were still meeting. And honestly, I'm not trying to be rude here, but I think that was an example of laziness and conformity. There were various churches throughout the nation and even in the small state where I live, that were meeting. And there were even Christians, sometimes within those very congregations of the pastors that canceled church, that were unwilling to cease meeting. So to say, well, yeah, we're just not sure of any churches that are really meeting, and every, you know, everybody seems to be following the mandates. To me, that was just laziness and, and conformity. Because if they would have done their homework, they would have realized there are Christians that are standing on the word of God. And we had a great opportunity to stand together and be an example of faithfulness, but we neglected that. So biblical wisdom, right? You're seeking counsel. Biblical wisdom, we have to remember, is about walking in what? The law of the Lord, okay? To seek counsel, to hear counsel that encourages you to cancel the assembly of the saints and then defend your actions by saying, we sought counsel on this, is like King Rehoboam, Right, like we just read about King Robam defending his actions by saying, Hey, I saw counsel on this. I got counsel for my decisions. If you know the story, Robam did seek counsel, and he did take counsel, but not from those who were going to tell him what he needed to hear, not from those who would counsel him according to the law word 
of God. Counsel, biblical counsel in general, is sort of like medical advice. And this is what really chaps my hide about advice from the medical experts. All right. I've been hearing this for years, right? And it for and any controversial issue, I mean, unless we're talking about, you know, injecting arsenic into your bloodstream, for that for anything else, we're talking about whether or not you should drink raw milk, whether or not you should take this vaccine, whether or not you should eat more fat, less fat. All these things, right? There's medical experts on both sides. And you, you, you cannot appeal to the experts to defend your answer. An appeal to authority is not a justification, even if there was only one side saying something. But more than that, it's not even helpful to you trying to figure it out, saying, well, the experts say this. Because you have to choose between the experts. You have to make your decision, which expert am I going to believe? You can't rely on the experts because the experts don't agree. You are responsible for your own health in the case of medical uh, situations. You have to decide which argument do I believe is most logical and coherent. I'm going to believe, I'm going to, I agree with this expert, not because this expert's saying it, but because I've looked at the arguments from both sides or three sides or four sides, and I've decided that this route is the most consistent, logical, and the best route for me. So you can't ever appeal to medical and say, well, the medical experts say this. You have to think for yourself and make your own decision. It's your health. You're responsible for it. And it's the same thing with biblical counsel. Biblical counsel. You must be able to discern between, between counselors. Therefore, the Bible makes this distinction between walking with the wise and being a companion of fools. Because you have to choose who you listen to. Generally, it is a good practice to look to those and seek to get counsel from those who have sought to apply God's law word consistently and boldly. And most of those churches that I knew of did not stop meeting. Most of those churches that had consistently in the past stood on God's law word and sought to apply it to all of life, most of them did not stop meeting. Maybe if they stopped for a week, they repented and quickly started meeting again. But most of those churches that I knew of that had not consistently sought to apply God's law word to all of life and stand upon the truth and, and stand on the gospel and not compromise and, and call out false gospels, most of those, not all, but most of those churches canceled the assembly of the saints. So there is something to be said for looking at someone's track record and how they apply the word of God, because those churches that were faithful to the word of God before that stood on the word of God, that were seeking to apply the law of God to all of life, many of them kept meeting. But a lot of the churches out there that you could already see some of their compromise, well, we're not going to apply the Bible in this area of life. We're not going to apply the Bible in the area of government. And we're not going to call out false gospels that are, you know, maybe a little Arminian. We're not going to call those out. Those churches, many of them did cancel the Assembly of the Saints. Counsel is important. But you ultimately are held responsible for whom you seek counsel from. And this is where the professing church sent the wrong message. And may this be a lesson to us all for every area of our lives. The blind guides of the Pharisees led people astray. And they will be held responsible. False, you know, Teachers that lead people astray will be held responsible. But the people who followed them will also be held responsible for their decision to follow this teaching. I remember when a pastor tried to persuade me and my wife from having children after getting married. Pastor sat down with us before we were married and somehow knew that, hey, our intention was once we get married that we would like to have children. And contra scripture, contra scripture, he tried to provide counsel that it would be better for us to not have children until maybe years later after we got married, like years after our, our, our wedding. I'm glad I didn't listen to his counsel and listen to God's word instead. Right? We, he said, when we get married, then we will come together and children will be a blessing from the Lord. So we sought to follow God's word, not man's counsel. You see, Christianity is not like the false system of Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, 
the believer, so to speak, is supposed to believe whatever the church authorities believe. There's even this idea of what's called implicit faith, wherein someone can be saved simply by saying, I believe what the church believes, even without knowing what the church believes. That's this, this false idea of implicit faith. That's not what Christianity is to be like. We're not to put blind faith in, in, in men or authorities. The blind guides in the evangelical church led people away from God's word. As John Speed put it, the evangelical gatekeepers advised the rest of us small fry to fall into our places in the parade away from the Lord's Day Assembly. These leaders will be held responsible, but so also will the people who followed them be held responsible. Listen to Spurgeon here as we conclude this thought on counsel. Listen to Spurgeon on the need to make our decisions regarding counsel, that those decisions are always, always, always to be based on the word of God. Listen to Spurgeon here. This is about counsel, specifically seeking counsel from others. Spurgeon says this, quote, Although consultation with others may often be serviceable on some points, and some who are deeply taught in the things of God may at times be helpful to us, we must not defer to what they say so as to miss the instructions the Lord himself gives us. No one's voice is to be sovereign to us except the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, speaking out of this book, which contains all things we need for life and godliness. We are not to obtain our creed by consultation with other people, but go to God himself and to pray he will write it on our hearts with his own hand. End quote. Now, if you think he's encouraging us to pray for a word from the Lord other than scripture, then you miss the quote. He is speaking about God's word. He says, the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, speaking out of this book. That is where we hear the voice of God. That is where we learn the way we are to go. No one's voice except that voice is to be sovereign. He says, hey, there are, there's a time where you may get some good counsel. He acknowledges that. But we cannot defer to that counsel so as to miss what God has said. And that's what happened with the covert compromise. Church leaders got together and they deferred to their counsel, their own counsel, instead of God's word. And again, it would have been wise to follow Spurgeon's counsel here as well. And as I mentioned in, in, in the book I wrote on this topic, Spurgeon lived through a, uh, a, a plague, a virus going around in his day, and he continued to meet. He would go out and minister to those who were in the area of London, affected by it. He had much to say about this topic, and he had much to say here about a, seeking counsel. We are to choose our counselors wisely. We cannot say, well, I sought counsel, therefore my decision is justified. We cannot say, well, I prayed about it, therefore my decision is justified. Because in both of those things, we have to turn to God's word for direction. So choose your counselors wisely because you can't simply say, well, I sought counsel because you're responsible for which counsel you take, which counsel you keep, and what counsel you apply. Number three, thought. The, the church leaders said, well, we gave this a lot of thought. We prayed about it, we sought counsel, and we gave this a lot of thought. Proverbs 28, 26, our verse for this point is, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Here again we see the contrast between biblical wisdom and other methods of determining how to act. Again, biblical wisdom is always to be understood in the context of walking in the law of the Lord. The contrast to that is trusting in your own mind. Right? Walking in the law of the Lord, contrast, trusting in your own mind. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much counsel you seek. And in this case, it doesn't matter how much you think about something, how much thought you put into it. If your conclusion is contrary to the law word of God, then you are wrong. It's the bottom line. It doesn't matter how much you prayed, how much counsel you sought, or how much you thought about it. You know, a church leader said, 
we, we gave this a lot of thought. You know, we thought about this a lot. And I don't mean to be rude again, but I'm going to call a spade a spade. My response to that is, so what? So you thought about it a lot. I'm sure Darwin gave a lot of thought to the origin of species. It didn't make it right. Again, just as godly prayer and godly counselors are good things, so too is serious thinking to be commended. To be commended. But such thinking must be guided, directed, and corrected by the word of God. Otherwise, it is irrelevant. Such thinking must be comprised of meditation on God's law. Psalm chapter 1. If it's not, it doesn't matter if I write a 5,000-page dissertation on a subject. It's irrelevant if it's not in accord with God's word. So we thought about it. It doesn't justify the decision. And lastly, number four, earnestness. Church leaders said we prayed about this. We sought counsel. We thought about it. And we really believe that this is what the Lord wants us to do. We really believe this is right. Proverbs 14, 12, but there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, this verse is often applied to salvation, and, and that's not wrong to do it, uh, to apply it that way. But it also applies in general to, to living and decisions we make. There are things that may seem right to us. There are things that seem right to us. There are things in my life that would seem right to me, but when I go to God's word, God's word says something different. And part of being sanctified is getting rid of those that sin uh, that says, hey, this seems like it should be another way. Again, the determining factor in what way we should take in life is not what seems right to us. The determining factor is the law of the Lord, the path that God has set forth in his word. We prayed, we sought counsel, we thought, and we really, truly, earnestly felt this was the best decision. God certainly won't hold that against us, right? Wrong. Wrong. There are many people who are earnest in their foolishness or sin. The people who will say to Jesus on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? They will certainly be earnest in their profession and they were earnest in their actions. But it is not a Christian virtue to be earnest in error. I could find you plenty of people who would say the same thing about their abortion or their sexual morality or their unjustified divorce. I really believe this is right. Now, before you get your panties in a bunch and say, well, the canceling church is not the same as abortion, understand that the point here is the logic behind the thought. It's the logic. If you can justify your action by saying, hey, we're earnest about it, then you can use that justification for any action. Such statements are meaningless. Earnestness and even Christian affiliation, right? We did this in your name. There's a bunch of Christian pastors that did this together. That matters not. Conformity to God's word is what matters. Conformity to God's word is what matters. Now, this sermon is about correcting our view on these four things. If someone agrees with what has been said, but says, hey, church leaders were correct to cancel service because God's word does not command believers to gather, then we're confronted with the problems we've addressed previously on, on being you know, disingenuous, I think, with what, what the Bible clearly says. And again, the church has acknowledged prior to the virus that Christians are commanded to meet. And I was just reading the other day from a study Bible published back in 2009, and its note said, God requires Christians to gather, to hear his word preached, receive the sacraments, pray, sing, and give thanks. I mean, everywhere you look, when you start looking at Christian teaching, the church is to meet together. So if someone wants to say, hey, we agree, I agree with everything you said, but the church was fine to cancel the Assembly of the Saints because the Bible doesn't require it. That's, that's another message, and we've addressed that. Again, the problem is that G, the, um, here we have uh, the bad message being sent by the professing church. The decision-making process employed by the majority of professing evangelical and reformed churches was not biblical. This is not how you are to think as a Christian. You're not to think, well, if I pray about it, if I seek counsel, if I think about it, and if I'm earnest about it, then it's the right path. That is wrong. That is wrong. Just because you pray about something, seek counsel, think about it a lot, and are earnest in it, doesn't mean it's right. You have to go to God's word 
and compare your actions with God's word. That was the wrong message being sent. Now, I'm not saying that using these things as justification automatically means the conclusion is wrong. I'm just saying you can't use these things for justification. Let me explain. For example, you could you could use you could you could pray, you could seek counsel, you could think about something, you could be earnest in it, and your decision could be, hey, we're gonna meet as a church. That's the right decision. But the fact you did those things doesn't justify that being the right decision. You used those things rightly and went to God's word and prayed without being double-minded and had to make your decision on which counselors am I going to accept and how am I going to think about scripture and to make sure I'm earnest in the truth, not in error. So the point is that those four things can't be used as a justification. There is a place, though, for prayer. There is a place for, place for counsel. There is a place for deep thought, and there is a place for earnestness. But all these things must be servants to God's law word. So I hope I have shown you how prayer, counsel, critical thinking, and earnestness can be employed in erroneous ways. My plea is that we will employ these blessings in proper ways, always in conformity to God's word, always submitting to God's word, that the one voice that will be sovereign will be God's voice speaking through this book. If we do that, we will be sure to be in the right path, the safe path, and we will not be unstable, we will not be double-minded, we will not be lawless, because we're seeking to base everything we do, every decision we make, every prayer we pray, every counselor we listen to, we're seeking to have all those things based on God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word. Thank you for providing us with such a clear revelation of who you are and how we are to live. We do pray that you would give us boldness to live out your word. Grant us wisdom, the wisdom to walk in your law, to not compromise Give us strength to do what we know is right, to obey what we see clearly before us. We pray for your will to be done and for your name to be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.